Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. We're thrilled to welcome Jennifer Phil Goldstein, Managing Partner of Life Sciences and Healthcare at Silicon Valley Bank's SUV Capital to the show today. Thank you once again for joining us. To help co-host this episode, I'm joined by my colleague and previous BIOS podcast guest, Jessica Chow. Go listen to her podcast if you haven't already. It's a great episode, as well as special guest host, Nabia Sekulen, uh, co-founder and CEO at Salino. Uh, Nabia, can you give our listeners a bit of background on yourself and Salino? Would love to. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited about the conversation. Salino is developing automated generation of personalized stem cells for cell-based therapies. And we have an AI-driven laser editing platform that we've built to automate the process of stem cell manufacturing. Very excited to be here today. All right, let's kick things off. Um, Jennifer, do you mind sharing more about your background and what you're doing now? Sure, I'm happy to. Well, let's see. So I started my career at the bench doing research. I studied bioengineering as an undergrad. And as much as I love science, lab work ended up not being the best fit for me. I I think I'd describe myself as probably too extroverted for the bench and uh, found that the really long feedback loops involved in basic research didn't quite drive me uh, the way other faster decision-making environments did. So I shifted to consulting and private equity work. I was at Bain and the nature of the work was a better fit, uh, though I really missed being focused on science and life sciences specifically. So I went back to do my graduate work in biotech as well as my MBA back at Penn for those. And after a brief stint at Chiron, uh, found myself in New York at Pfizer. And Pfizer was great. I absolutely loved my time there. Was there for about seven years. Most of that was in their corporate venture arm with Barbara Dalton, Elaine Jones, and Bill Burkhoff. It was a great time. I loved the work. Uh, We loved living in New York. Our twins, who are now 10, were born there. But ultimately, we wanted to come back to the Bay Area to be closer to family, which led me to SVB, where I've been for nine years now, which has been amazing. Uh, I work with just really curious, motivated, smart people across a wide variety of roles. And my most recent adventure here at SVB Capital uh, is helping to set up our direct investment strategy for life science companies. Well, it's fantastic to meet you. And I love SVB. We bank with them. We'd love to hear a little bit more from you about uh, your North Star. Throughout your career, what has been your North Star, the common thread, if you will, tying all of your incredible work together? Yeah, it's, it's a... It's a really interesting question. And I think the scientist in me would probably point back to truth. Truth is my North Star, um, you know, probably above all other things. I, I like to think I'm pretty transparent by nature uh, and, and hopefully a strong communicator. I don't like working in an environment where I don't feel like I can share the world through my own personal lens. And it's hard for me when I sense that others are not able to share fully. And obviously that can be for any number of reasons. And I think 
the teams where I've had the most affinity and spent the most time have been ones where we quickly get to that place of trust, where, you know, difficult situations can be shared and tackled together, um, which is not always easy. But uh, I would say, you know, if you can, you can find teams and build teams around you that where people can be open and truthful, uh, that would probably be my North Star as I think about the different, the different opportunities I, I've been fortunate enough to have in my career. That sounds amazing. And that's so important. That's such a huge part of communication and building trust. I love that. Okay, I'm sh shifting gears a little bit and ask you a question that uh, we like to ask our guests it comes from Dennis Gabor, who is an electrical engineer and received the 1971 Nobel Physics Prize, which is amazing. Uh, I'm a physicist by training, so this is a nerd out moment for me. <laughs> he says, the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. So the question for you is, can you tell us what does inventing the future mean to you? I love that this came from a physicist and not from a biologist. So I, I, I probably agree with his statement to some extent, maybe not fully that all of our future can be invented. Uh, but what I will say is that I think inventing the future, if I think about that as a concept, is probably about taking ideas and executing against them, um, even more so than finding the ideas in the first place. I think so many brilliant ideas die from lack of good execution. For inventors and founders and scientists who are thinking um, very broadly about what external conditions are necessary, boundary conditions, if you will, to support novel innovation, that's really what I think about when I think about inventing the future. So businesses don't, don't succeed in a vacuum. You need ecosystems, diverse stakeholders. It's about people, time, and place. You know, all the stars have to align. And I think to some degree, people are able to help align those stars or at least see when the stars are starting to cluster. You know, if I interpret his statement that way, I, I think you can think about inventing the future to the extent that you're really thinking holistically about all the other elements that need to come together in order to help take an idea through to execution. Thanks, Jennifer. And would love to dive a little more into your work at SVB. You've been there over nine years now in a variety of different roles. Can you tell us more about your work at SVB and some of the opportunities you've had? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I've been so, so lucky to have built this career at SVB. It was, it was a little bit of a, a change for me coming out of a corporate venture arm, doing, doing investing to take a chance on a commercial bank. They very much took a chance on me as well. I was not a banker by training. And it, it's just been the greatest adventure through ups and downs, some hard times, some good learnings, some, some difficult learnings. But this organization has really pushed me and trusted me through some significant shifts in responsibility over my career here. I would say that being intellectually curious has been uh, a common thread throughout many of my colleagues here at the bank. And really, I would say that the bank's orientation to a customer service uh, mentality, like we really wanna put it all on the line for entrepreneurs. Being surrounded by people like that all day is just inspiring and fun. We build, we fail, we pivot, we change. I mean, it really feels very entrepreneurial, even though we're a very large financial institution now. So it's been a great platform to grow on. And there's just so many more exciting opportunities I see 
in, in the future, not only for the bank, but for me here. So it's been just terrifically fun. Uh, opportunity at Silicon Valley Bank. Fantastic. And, and let's dive a little bit more into that. Um, can you tell us what it was like to transition between the really the, the multitude of different practices you've been at the bank and some of the nuances within those? Yeah, I mean, for everybody that's going through career shifts, whether that's changing industries, changing companies, or even making um, internal moves within a larger organization like I've done here, you've got to be vulnerable, right? You, you've got to You've got to have enough self-confidence to understand that you're bringing new gifts and new perspectives and, and new context to an opportunity, but balance that with how much you don't know when you're starting something new. And back to sort of my true north, I love that question earlier, my north star about truth. If, if you can be authentically open with the people you're working with about what you know, where you maybe see things from a different point of view, asking the dumb questions, surrounding yourself with people who have a lot of experience and can help guide you along the way. You get through those, those rocky first six months or 12 months. Um, and you've got to give yourself a little bit of breathing room, knowing that when you make a big change, it's going to be bumpy. Like you're signing up for that. And I see a lot of people sort of hit that first bump in the road or that first obstacle and uh, want to crawl away or, or honestly, I see a lot of people change jobs, right? They make a mistake and they think the best thing for them to do is just to exit stage left. And, uh, you know, I've, I've fallen down. I've skinned my knees a couple of times. You got to just slap a bandaid on it and get up and, and get back out there. So uh, SVB has been a really nurturing, supportive place to do that. And, you know, you've got to have a little bit of risk taking in you to be crazy enough to want to make changes every time the learning curve starts to flatten out. But if you're wired that way, it can be a really fun adventure. So that, that's kind of been my philosophy to making these changes at SDB over the years. I love it. Thanks for sharing and, and, and totally echo the sentiment there. And would love to go a little bit further into your work now at SVB Capital. Mm -hmm. um, can, can you share more about your personal investment philosophy and perhaps kind of how this has evolved over time? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad you asked this question. I don't know that my answer will be all that novel, probably from others that you bring on and from yourself, you know, in terms of what really gets me excited, but drive, passion, and critical thinking would be three big ones. Um, you know, we talk about how we assess the teams as much, if not more than the technology. And, and I, I think I would support that too. It's about finding people that are experts at what they do, that really have a vision about making change but are self-reflective enough to course correct and bring in others when they're too far outside of their depth. Um, you know, I, 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 I like to think that that's allowed me to make course pivots in, in my career. And I look for that in, in teams that I'm uh, excited to, to get involved with and support as much as looking at technology and market fit and all the classic things we look for when we look at opportunities for investment and, Across science right now, I know we've got some pretty impressive science folks on the line with us. Um, it is an awesome time to be searching for opportunities to back in the innovation sector. Uh, it's easy to fall in love with science and technical innovation, but you know, having that discipline to say, are all the other elements there, as we talked about, you know, the, the stakeholder set, the ecosystem, have the stars aligned around this opportunity, or can you help this team align those stars to increase their probability of success. 
that that's probably what really drives me if I think about where I tend to focus my time. So not to put you in the spot here, but we wanted to do a little bit of a deep dive as we were prepping for this podcast and went through the archives and found a guest post you wrote for Endpoint News back in 2018, talking about the three big ways reshaping early stage biotech investing. And 2018, why only a couple of years ago, I think in biotech, many can agree after the COVID era we've lived through, that feels like a decade, if not more. (laughs) Um, Would love to now revisit that. And can you share with us today, what are the big waves reshaping biotech in 2021? Yeah, I'm so glad you guys dug up that article. And, you know, it was fun to sort of revisit it and say, oh, gosh, looking back, how right or wrong was I in 2018 trying to predict the future? And and the good news is I think the article sort of stands the test of time. It's only three years old. So uh, but we have had a lot of change in our world and and even within life sciences in that period of time. Um, But I think the article still holds true. You know, we look back at the waves of investing and how company formation was really progressing over the years. And so much started to be true around the 2015, 2016 timeframe around better tools and technologies to accelerate the pace of innovation, better ways to stratify patients, novel forms of capital entering the life science sphere for the first time that allowed us to take advantage of some structures that were used in other industries, but traditionally hadn't been used to advance scientific uh, innovation. All of that was starting to come together. And this of course was sort of right at the beginning when this article was published of the frenzy of fundraising activity and capital flowing into the sector. So that was just icing on the cake or fuel, if you will, towards this third wave, which is around more efficient scientific discovery and research and company formation. And I I think we've very much seen that just be catalyzed in large financings where really strong management teams are coming together at the top with many, many shots on goal and many, many different sort of subs underneath them, taking more of a, a private equity approach to financing cash burning science. And that was really the novel inflection point there was was starting to see these tools, which as I said, have been used in other industries for a long time, but start to make their way into healthcare. So as somebody who has both the the love and the passion and the background in science, but also a, a deep financial background, to be able to see some of these sophisticated capital tools come to work, certainly for me at SVB, front row seat to how leverage can be used even for pre-revenue companies to really advance and drive their, their capital strategy. It's been, it's been fun to watch all these different pieces come together. Back to that, all the stars have to align piece. I didn't predict uh, that the markets would take off the way they did, but you could see that there was change coming in terms of capital efficiency. And ultimately, that's invited a lot of exciting investment into the sector. So Jennifer, you're, you're starting up a, a new fund in the space uh, as we kind of talk about what's next. Arterial, can you give us a little bit of background on how this fits within the SVB Capital Key family and, and, and what gave rise to this? Sure. Happy to, to address that at a high level. So SVB Capital has been uh, SVB's equity arm for 20 years now, doing fund-to-fund investing, direct investing, and, and credit products, so debt investing through um, vehicles. And so 
we have a rich history of, of deploying capital on behalf of LPs, and, and we're really excited to be thinking about how we expand that into a direct offering for life sciences. So let's shift here a little bit and dive into a topic that's near and dear to, especially to my heart, uh, women's health. Um, so Jennifer, it looks like you have been investing or spending more time in investing in women's health. Um, why women's health thesis in particular? Um, and then the second part of the question is then in investing, what are you looking for in companies and founders um, who are looking to disrupt the space? Great. So two-part question. Really excited that we're able to talk about this on the, on the discussion today. Um, I am also really passionate about women's health. Uh, it's been an area of long underinvestment. Um, and I think it's important for our listeners to understand first that it's a really broad category. So when we talk about women's health, even though, you know, I think for a long time, people have just lumped a lot of these, these categories into one broader structure, you've got consumer-oriented digital health companies, you've got companies that are pursuing uh, health conditions specific to women that specifically uh, impact women, and then you have diseases that affect everybody, but disproportionately impact women. And so even within those three broad categories, it's a pretty wide landscape. Um, I tend to focus more on the unmet medical aspect of women's health. So whether that's health conditions that are specific to women or diseases that disproportionately impact women, um, I, I have less direct experience on the consumer oriented digital health side, though we spend a lot of time as SVB in that space. Um, but I'm particularly interested in the therapeutic space along with the diagnostics and supportive tools that are necessary to make that research happen. So um, it's it's very important uh, that we see more money and, and more innovation flow to these sectors. And uh, I'm really glad that we have a chance to talk about it today. That's great, that's super insightful. Um, so this is even more interesting. So just last year, according to Rock Health, um, the number of investment in women-focused digital health and, and perhaps therapeutic space rose 105%, uh, which is super rare to see. Um, I think from a sort of macro lens, um, what do you think are the factors that's contributing to like this particular trend? So first of all, yay! Let's <laughs> just start with a yay. It's always good when we see more investment flowing into a sector that we're both passionate about and has been traditionally underfunded. Um, you know, even though I spend most of my time on traditional life sciences and less so on the digital health side of the equation, which is what I think this stat specifically refers to, the trends to me aren't surprising. When you think about huge unmet market need and a really savvy end user population. I mean, this was sort of like first, first day of business school, kind of 101, right? You've got a large untapped market and a, and a very uh, active, educated user base. Um, it makes it a really good place for innovation to come in. Women are, you know, by and large, the, the biggest drivers of consumer spend in household. They also tend to be the primary party responsible for broader family health decisions. And when you put those together, right, with all the unmet need, it's not surprising at all that we're starting to see this increase in attention, funding, and success begets success. Um, for the, how, how it's been so fun to have a front row seat here at SVB and see some of these phenomenal companies take off and, and do really well, uh, um, both from a financial standpoint, but also from a societal standpoint. Yeah, super exciting. I, I completely agree with you. Um, on the flip side, um, I'm wondering, are there like 
I mean, there are barriers to investing in women's health company. Like, can you expand on like any barriers in particular that you see that are like contributing factors into um, like investors not being able to invest in the space? Yeah, I mean, there, there obviously are fundamental reasons why it's been underinvested. Um, even when you look at some of the outcomes and wonder why it's taken us so long to start to pay attention to, to these market needs. Um, you know, as I think about it, I, I think I'll break it down into a couple of different broader themes. And I'm going to start on the medical side. Um, I think there's a few dynamics that have been working against the space. One is that there is clearly unmet medical need on the medical side in women's health, but it's not always as well established as it is in populations that impact general health, uh, you know, the general population health diseases. Uh, this starts to be doubly true if you start to look at communities of color and then layer women's health on top of that. There are certainly autoimmune diseases, neurological diseases, cardiovascular diseases, just to name a few that disproportionately impact women and women of color. But medicine, like every other industry, even though we don't like to think about it, is still subject to supply and demand economics. So if there isn't pull from the medical community to develop new treatments, as an investor, it's sometimes difficult to justify backing an early stage company with the assumption that push economics is gonna be enough to get you to a strong financial exit. So let me try to clarify that. Like if you have an unmet medical need in a disease that disproportionately affects women and you have to educate pharmaceutical partners, you need to educate physicians, you need to educate payers about this disease that has often been undertreated um, or, or poorly treated, uh, you're taking on additional market and execution risk as an, as an investor into whatever technical risk you're also assessing at the same time. Sometimes investors may find that it's just easier to take the technical risk with a, a drug, let's say, that's in development where the market dynamics are already well-established, right? You're taking that risk off the table as an investor. Now, that alone, to me, doesn't explain underinvestment. <laughs> because we've seen plenty of examples of, of novel technologies that have been financed that had to carve that path with market and execution risk or educate the FDA uh, physicians, payers about how to position these drugs um, in the last mile. So I don't buy that that's the primary reason why there's underinvestment, but my guess is that it is certainly working against um, some categories of women's health companies that are doing something that's really novel and has been under-addressed for a long time. Uh, you, you can't not talk about unconscious bias as well. Um, and that there are probably, if you look at the vast majority of who is making these investments decisions from uh, you know, an investor set, there may be people that fail to appreciate the market potential of a, uh, of a therapy or a diagnostic or a digital health technology if it's just not something they can individually relate to. I think that's starting to change. I think people are, are very much more open to thinking about marketplaces where they themselves would not be a consumer, but um, I'm sure that that's also uh, held back some of the investment over, you know, looking back over the last couple of decades. And I think Jennifer, you talked multiple times on the unmet need. I think thinking, maybe going, diving deeper into the whole like women continuum of health, 
I don't know, can you highlight on like, is it on the care delivery side, like under education, poor delivery of care? Like, is it on the MedTech side? Are there particular diseases that you want to highlight for the audience? There is so much <laughs> that we could do better in women's health. You know, I, I think there are, I certainly spent a lot of time on the therapeutic side, but certainly the diagnostics, the care delivery, you know, disparities with how different folks in, in different parts of the country, certainly, and when you start to talk about global health care, it's even more pronounced, receive and are sort of diagnosed with different underlying conditions. There's a lot of work to do. One resource that maybe I would love to highlight to turn the audience's attention to is I've been so lucky to be a part of a group where I'm an advisor called the Women's Health Innovation Coalition. Kind of a mouthful, sorry, group. But if you Google that, hopefully you can get to their website. It's a it's a nonprofit. It's got great resources for founders who are in this space, for investors that are looking to learn more about underserved areas, and for all the supportive ecosystem partners that need to to be a part of the solution, including the government. Uh, policy is a big part of this effort too. So. That'd be one place I would say that um, I'm finding even for me to be a really useful set of resources as I think about where investment opportunities may be and and to help guide some entrepreneurs I know that are are trying to innovate in this specific region. But so much important work is being done um, with so many phenomenal founders turning their attention to this now. So it is, I know we share this passion, but it is fun to see the uptick uh, in an area that's been long underrepresented. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, definitely lots and lots of opportunities here. Okay, so my last question in women's health. <laughs> How do you think the funding environment will evolve for these companies and startups now in the coming years? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there will continue to be femtech type opportunities that are really more consumer or digital health oriented. And that is coming into its own right as a, as a class of investment. But on the medical side, I would like... Maybe this is the the serial optimist in me, but I would like to move away from women's health really being a category. Why can't it just be health, right? If you're talking about um, certain cardiovascular diseases or neurological conditions that just tend to impact women more, that shouldn't necessarily have to be lumped under women's health, right? It, it's a market with with patients that need therapies, so. That would sort of be my, my end point here is as I think about the how this dynamic unfolds as, as the markets get more sophisticated in understanding where the unmet medical need is, I think we move away from classifying something as a women's health condition and just classifying it appropriately as a medical condition, even if it does happen to impact women more than men. Amazing. So much, uh, so many exciting advancements to talk through the women's health. I feel very optimistic. I share your optimism. So it's very, very exciting. <laughs> so we're going to shift gears a little bit to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, biotech, startups, VCs. We know it's an important topic in your heart. And in addition to being a managing partner at SVB, you were also founding member of Venture Forward, a nonprofit launched in June 2020 that is dedicated to providing resources and education towards developing a diverse, equitable, and inclusive VC ecosystem. And I really resonated, Jennifer, when you talked about unconscious bias. And that is such an important topic we have to address in all of society. And we all need to be addressed, including ourselves. How are we approaching other people that we're interacting with? And how to deal with the implicit challenges of, of bias? But 
we'd love to hear more about the work you do at Venture Forward and what have been some of the most impactful projects you've worked on. Sure. Uh, another resource, Venture Forward. So another one to Google for our audience members. Um, I, I'm so just happy and, and impressed and uh, humbled by uh, the work that this group has started coming out of the NBCA. SVB has been a long supporter of the NBCA, which spun out Venture Forward. And uh, SVB was, was very excited to jump at the chance to be part of Venture Forward very early in its inception here. Um, and that's how I first got introduced to the group. It's uh, the advisory board is is amazing. Uh, I, I I don't quite know how I had the luxury of being added to that group, um, but I'm learning a lot from being being a part of these meetings with this group. And I would say you asked about some of the most impactful projects we've worked on. Um, there are a lot of things that Venture Forward uh, does, but two that I'd like to highlight that I have found to be most impactful to me would be one would be VC University. So this is a program where um, individuals that would like to learn more about a career trajectory in venture uh, can come. There are virtual sessions as well as in-person sessions, though, of course, the last year was kind of a, a hybrid, interesting pivot like everybody else uh, for the in-person sessions. But this is a, an opportunity to build more awareness about what a career track in venture looks like for a broader group of people. I mean, VC for a long time has been an apprenticeship model. I think that's still very much true. But um, certainly like when I was in college, even when I was going through my MBA, which is a business oriented graduate program, right? We didn't really learn about venture. We learned about hedge funds and private equity and banking. Um, but there wasn't really a lot of great resources to teach me about what venture was. And how does venture work? I sort of fell into venture like many people did. It's probably changed a little bit from when I was in school, but even so, it, it hasn't generally been accessible to, to lots of people to learn about what a career in venture means. And so VC University would be one thing that I think yeah, holds a lot of promise for opening the door to more people to find their way into venture. Um, the second would be a report that Venture Forward puts out actually in, in uh, combination with Deloitte, I believe is the co-sponsor of that, which sort of is the you know, a baseline pulse check on how we're doing as a sector, um, how the VC ecosystem is doing along different diversity and inclusion metrics, which is, you know, as we know, a really important part of the discussion too. And so without an understanding of how we're doing, it's very hard to, you know, you, you can't change what you can't measure. So um, think about progress that's being made and where that, that disruption is coming from. So those would be probably two two initiatives that I know Venture Forward is very involved in that I think are having an immediate impact. Sounds absolutely incredible and necessary to bring about change in our, in our communities and industries. Maybe shifting gears a little bit to just if we could get your recommendations for ways in which uh, inter interested members of the audience could get involved. What, what do you think they should do? Well, obviously they should be listening to these podcasts. Uh, and uh, they can go to some of the resources we talked about today, like Venture Forward um, and the Women's Health Innovation Coalition. But, you know, one thing I, I just sort of think about, um, I, first of all, I don't have all the answers, right? I am by no means an expert on how we think about bringing um, stronger and more inclusive venture communities together. Do I think that it's important? I absolutely think it's important. 
And am I learning on my own journey about what role you know I can play or we can amplify through SVB? Yes, I mean that that's sort of something I've taken on as as a responsibility. It's it's my privilege to be able to use this platform to do it. But for those that maybe haven't thought about it in a venture fund, if you're sitting in a venture fund and you haven't had a group discussion about these topics, or you're in a team and you haven't had a discuss conversation about these topics, you know the way I always come back to it is. Innovation happens at the intersections. And if you want to be finding things that other people haven't already stumbled across, you need diverse viewpoints to find it. And that has to do with talent, that has to do with experience, that has to do with location. Um, everybody benefits when we've got different people looking at the same problems through new lenses. And I just fundamentally don't believe you can do that unless you're building diverse teams that actually celebrate those differences uh, because it's that breadth that allows you to be more nimble and to see things that other people haven't. And fundamentally, that's what venture and entrepreneurship and innovation is all about. So it is is such a core tenant to being productive in this innovation space that I really hope that people embrace it for the tremendous value it brings by, by continuing to make it a focus area for teams. I love that, Jennifer. Thank you so much for really describing that and the importance of that direction so clearly. My personal story, as I mentioned, I'm a physicist, but I ended up working with biologists during my PhD, which led to the launch of Selino because there was this huge unmet need in the stem cell engineering space and how do we automate it? How do we make it scalable, mm -hmm. cost-effective? And I happened to invent the, the best solution to tackling that problem. And my story really has been to live at the convergence of different disciplines, of physics, biology, and now we do a lot of machine learning and AI. And the team is so interesting because we do have representation across age, across race, ac across sexual orientation, religion, and all of those different viewpoints really help us innovate much faster than we possibly could if we all thought alike, which we love. And then we spend a lot of time on communication, but building those bridges and amplifying what we can do together. So I completely resonate with that. And that's, that's every day at Selena, the biologists. Today, for example, the physicists were learning about QPCR, <laughs> which was uh, really fun um, and I think brought up some interesting questions that um, we couldn't have thought of on our own. I love that. I love that. And, you know, I, I don't want to, it, it sounds sort of Pollyanna-ish, right? When, when we talk about it, that, oh, it's so great, diversity, we bring in all these different viewpoints. And for the cynics out there, you know, they, they clearly just haven't experienced what it means to be in a team that is challenging one another to think differently, you always get to better outcomes. As much as there are times in my life when it would be easier for people to just tell me my idea is brilliant and I clearly have all the answers. Uh, <laughs> even within my own family, that very rarely happens. So, you know, I think if we're, if we're true to ourselves and humble and realize that, yes, it sometimes takes a little bit more time to pause and collect different perspectives and to sort through them and to come up with you know, option C versus just looking at options A and B. Uh, that is where true innovation happens. And uh, I'm so glad we had a chance to talk about that today. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. 
So this is something I think about a lot because obviously for me, it's a priority for us to be speaking multiple technical languages, multiple languages of different life experiences. But what do you think we as individuals in the biotech community can be doing to promote strong and inclusive communities? What needs to happen at individual level and then also at a top-down level? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. So I think I think science is sort of wired to be good at this. Uh, science still has a long way to go, but if I think about science is already fundamentally uh, a product of intersectionality, right? Um, and so the more we can continue to find opportunities for groups to interact, uh, I think we do better. And so it is probably part of the reason we can continue to see this concentration of intellectual mm, capital in certain regions in the US because people bump into each other in South San Francisco and in Cambridge outside of Boston and share ideas, right? Scientists are always sharing ideas and not to say that that doesn't happen in other parts of the country or other parts of the world, but I think if you can be purposeful in creating casual collisions, if you will, like the concept of the water cooler, but outside of just your, your immediate sphere that you interact with the most, um, good things happen. So whether that's proactively making sure that, you know, people are attending conferences or finding ways to engage with different groups than they've engaged with before, um, those networks and creating those bridges to groups that you didn't have before I think is one easy step that groups can start to take um, to help continue to bring more diversity and diverse perspectives into our ecosystem. That's absolutely on point. And that was absolutely my journey. My personal journey of becoming an entrepreneur was spending most of my time hanging out in Kendall Square in yeah. coffee shops and having <laughs> meetings with people and then running into people on the street and scheduling the next meeting. That absolutely happens. And uh, there's this rapid acceleration of thinking and learning and mindset growth that happens with human connections. At the end of the day, where the human part of us is is uh, is the most important in many ways. Um, so, building more of those connections couldn't agree more. Okay, um, moving on to this next question, which I'm very excited to have this discussion with you, Jennifer, because this is something I've been thinking about very deeply the past few months. I would say the past six months in particular, it's really tying back to the discussion you and Jessica had earlier about equity, about accessibility, and how do we create products and therapies that can be used by more and more patients and, you know, kind of isolating women's, the women population as a separate thing. Or, you know, how do we, how do we think about that? What I've been thinking about really has been from a leadership perspective perspective. And when I look around biotech, and I look at the C-level executive suite, I don't see a lot of diversity. <laughs> and at Salino, we have three co-founders and two of us are women of color. So I'm, I'm Bangladeshi originally. I'm international. I'm an immigrant. My co-founder, Marina, she's Mexican-Filipina. She's from California. And we both happen to be physicists, with, which is a unique story in, 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 in itself because it's rare for to find women physicists a lot of times. But what I've been thinking about a lot these days is how Marina and I, when we 
are thinking about patient populations and making cell therapies that truly work for every patient, regardless of their demographic, regardless of their racial background, we bring a lot of our own perspectives to it. And I think about that from a personalized cell therapy standpoint, which is what Salino is developing, off the shelf therapies are not going to work for my co-founder because she's mixed race. Even if we gave her immunosuppression, we wouldn't be able to give her an HLA matched IPSC based cell therapy. So we make different choices as a business and we think more broadly around accessibility yeah. of the cell therapies we're developing. And the, the thesis I'm converging is that in order to develop and build equitable medicines, biotech leadership needs to reflect society, needs to reflect the patient populations that we're building these medicines for. So I'd love to hear your take on how do we do that? Why is, you know, what do you think about how to build more of those bridges and how do we get to a world where we have more equitable medicines available to us all? Um, you know, I think in my career, I have seen progress. I want to start by saying that I'm sure you have too. Um, Absolutely. We have, yes. you know, you, you can't, what's the expression? You can't be it if you can't see it. I, I think we're starting to see more, more diversity. If we want to continue to use that word uh, at leaderships in the boardroom across publications coming out of academia. I mean, is there work to do? There is still a lot of work to do, but I think we're starting to see progress uh, in terms of where the innovation is coming from. I also think that we are sitting at what we will look back, this is my prediction for the podcast, right? We will look back and realize that probably around 2020 was the tipping point when healthcare just absolutely exploded. I think we are going to see so in, in the positive sense exploded. Absolutely. Um, see so many new companies, so much new innovation. There is so much white space. We have better tools and technologies to make scientific advancements faster than ever before. We have better capital tools that are more efficient to, to solve technical risks and move ideas forward. And that's going to take talent, like a lot of talent. It's not going to be the same X number of founders that have already built companies that are leading all of these new initiatives. There just wouldn't be enough people. And so I think that the, the dynamics of the expansion in the number of companies, I think the economy can support a lot more companies, especially if they're capitally efficient, is going to lead to more people raising their hand to take on the risk to build their own businesses. And I think that democratization of biotech. You know, for a long time, the barriers to entry were so high to get a company, a biotech company started that even if you were a brilliant scientist, you re recognize that you, you really didn't have the capital or the connections to go out and start something. Now you can get started easily, right? You can outsource some of your lab work. You can build a virtual team. I mean, there's other barriers, but um, a lot of those barriers are not the same as they used to be. And I think there will be so many more shots on goal and so many more companies being built that that creates space for a lot more individuals to step into leadership roles for the first time. I love that. I'm feeling the optimism. I'm very, <laughs> very excited and uh, wonderful. Thank you for answering all those questions. And I'll hand over to Jessica. <laughs> sure. Awesome. Um, I mean, like today, we're just so grateful for your time. 
um, for like just distilling all your years of learning into like these insights for us, right? Um, and that before we close, I want to like cap things off by asking like a couple like rapid fire questions. So okay, bear with us, a couple more questions for you. <laughs> Ready. Awesome. Describe biotech in 2050. Where will we be? So I think that 30 years from now, I like to think that we will have a biological understanding of most forms of cancer and neurological disorders. We're a long way off, but I think in 30 years from now, we will, we will understand diseases and be able to parse out different patient populations in a way that we're able to tackle diseases that right now have, have eluded us um, from having any really strong therapies. So I very much think that's realistic in 30 years. Um, yeah. I am personally fascinated with the idea of proactively managing our immune systems and maybe our microbiomes. Um, if we can move into more preventative health and, and not just sort of sick care in 30 years, we may be going in for, you know, our regularly scheduled, scheduled checkups with our doctors and come out like a car tune up where we need to make some, some fine tuning and adjustments to our immune systems or our microbiomes uh, in, in advance of, of identifying diseases. So that would be pretty neat. I mean, I know we've got a lot of folks that are sort of taking that on themselves and experimenting with diet and other things, but I think the medical profession will start to catch up to that. So um, that would be interesting to see if that comes to, to, to fruition in 30 years. We'll have to see if we can find this podcast then and, and go back and listen and see if anything these things come true. Um, and then I think on the societal front, I hope that health and healthy habits become ingrained into our education and social services. You know, we, we don't talk about that a lot when we talk about the innovation space because we're so focused on building new businesses and new things. But fundamentally, if we just found a way to make it easier for people to take better care of their health early in their lives, we wouldn't have a lot of the diseases that we see people start to exhibit later in their life. And so it's not really an area that we've seen a lot of VC investment or sort of startup activity. But I would like to think 30 years from now, we as a society have come to the conclusion that it is worth investing in our population health early, um, you know, through social services and, and probably through the education system to help us prevent getting diseases that we could have prevented if we had just taken care of patients earlier in their life. So those are probably three areas looking ahead that I'd love to see. I'd love to see those things happen before 30 years, but hopefully in 30 years, we've made a place where those things come true. Wow, I hope everything you said comes true. Um, okay, now think 2050 again, um, but can you describe SVB life sciences now? Um, I think SVB will, I mean, we, we're the market leader across most elements of the capital community in life sciences. So I, I think that that will just be taken to, you know, the, the next several levels. And uh, I could see us in a place where we're helping to create companies, you know, work directly with academia, bridge science uh, globally from, from different areas of innovation. I, I think we will do all of that well before 30 years from now in the life sciences space. So we've kind of got all the toys that we need at our disposal now to really tackle life sciences in a unique way at SVB. So part of the reason I've been so excited to continue to build here is just because of that opportunity set. Oh, got it. Um, 
Jennifer, how does our listener um, learn more about your work? Yeah, well, you can find SVB online, of course. Uh, and so that's probably a really good place to start. And uh, we, we tend to be pretty good about putting news flow and things up on our website. So, uh, and then some of the other initiatives I'm involved in, I think we mentioned them earlier in the call. Um, you know, you can find me on LinkedIn and see some of the other hobbies and, and activities and organizations I'm involved with. So, um, you know, just stay, stay curious. SVB is here to help. So whether it's through me or, or, or through any other number of people at SVB, if you're an entrepreneur or a VC or someone with an idea and you don't know where to go, um, SVB is a great place to start. So find your way here through everybody's connected to somebody at SVB, I feel like. So just find your way in and, and, and we'll get you to the right place. But that's probably the best way to learn more about what we're doing. Uh, thanks, Jennifer, for an absolutely incredible episode. We're very grateful for your time. Thanks once again for joining us. So fun. Thanks, you guys, so much for having me here today. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.